You know, after returning from a vacation, I found that one of the most difficult things to do is to try to convey the beauty of that place where you visited on vacation to those who didn't go with you. You come back and they say, well, how was it? And you say, oh, it was gorgeous. And you start to try to explain it and they get a glazed look on their eye and you think, you weren't there. You weren't there. You, you, can't, you can't imagine what it is we saw, what we experienced. And how true that is. How true that is. Even, even when you take pictures and you get your pictures back and you, and you look at them and you think, well, gee, it was a lot prettier. And maybe, maybe that's just me and the way I take pictures. I don't know. But it just seems like, wow, it was a lot prettier when I was there than it is now in this little frame of a picture. It just doesn't seem to capture the glory of it. This morning, we get to our final event in the series, Things to Come. And the Apostle John is going to capture for us things that no one has ever seen. And he's He's going to try to paint that picture for us using human language, and it's going to creak and it's going to groan in an attempt to convey the glory of the eternal state. There's just no way that that words can really do it justice. There are no pictures to bring back. We arrive at chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation Why don't you go ahead and open up there, page 1241. Jeremy took the morning scripture reading from a portion of that. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 1 together in the first five verses of chapter 22. This is the end of the story. It's the end of the story. This is is where all the loose ends get wrapped up. This is where all the unresolved mysteries Get resolved for us. At least when you write a a good mystery novel, isn't that the way it happens? It's supposed to keep you going all the way to the last chapter and even the last paragraph of the last chapter to resolve it all. And although the Word of God is not a mystery story, it still is written in such a way that it brings us to the end and, and kind of wraps things up for us. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Those who are participating with us in the in the Through the Bible in a Year reading program. On December 31st, we're going to read Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22. And then on January 1st, the next day, we're going to, we're going to turn around again and we're going to go to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so in the space of two days, put right next to each other, we're going to read the end and the beginning of the whole story. And that's important because... A lot of what the Apostle John is going to deal with here in chapters 21 and 22, the first part of 22 of the book of Revelation, are drawn out of those early chapters of Genesis. It presupposes an understanding of Genesis. That which began in Genesis in the garden is then resolved at the end in Revelation 21 and 22. Now you remember back to the garden, right? I know you weren't there, but but you remember 
God created this universe in six days. Six literal 24-hour days. Those first three days, He formed the universe, and in the next three, He filled it. And on the sixth day, God created His highest creation, man. He had prepared a beautiful place for man, a garden, paradise. Paradise, the Persian loan word for garden, actually. He created paradise. He had created a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he had placed Adam and Eve in that garden. And he had given them a responsibility to care and tend for that garden under his sovereign rule and ownership. And he had told them they could enjoy the, the fruit and the blessing and the beauty of that garden. There was just one tree in the middle of the garden. They, they must not eat of that one tree. Everything else was laid wide open for them. You remember what happened. Satan and came to them through the serpent and tempted Eve. And she took and ate and gave to her husband. And he ate with her. And when he ate, he plunged the human race into ruination. He brought upon himself and his offspring death, sorrow, suffering, misery. They were ejected from that garden. The way to the, to the tree of life that would have given them immortality was cut off from them. They were banished. They were separated from God. Generation after generation, the children of Adam have felt within themselves and around them in their environment the devastating effect of His rebellion. We live in a sin-scarred world. We are the descendants of Adam. We live in a world that is broken. We know by experience the frustration of a grinding work that never brings satisfaction. We know the reality of broken relationships. We feel the pain of unsatisfying worship. And you don't have to live very long in this world before you feel up close and personal the pain of suffering and the constant specter of death that hangs over us. Even as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who have been born again to a new and a living hope, we still live as it is, as it were, in two worlds. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom to come, and, and yet our residency is here on this earth. We wake up every single day with a sobering reality of sin. We feel it in our bones, and the older I get, the more I feel it in my bones. Pain. Sorrow, misery. And we know, beloved, that realistically, that's all we're going to expect. It is punctuated by occasional flashes of pleasure, but they are short-lived. The reality of the matter is, to a thinking person, this world is very, very broken. Very broken. We live, as I said, in two worlds. Our, our citizenship is in the world to come, but our residency here. And we long to 
to be where our citizenship where our citizenship lies in heaven. We long to be free, don't we? Don't you want to be free of the pain? Don't you long to be free of the sorrow and the misery? Aren't you tired of this life and this world and all the pain that it has to offer? Do you long for the world to come? It's my hope this morning as we look together at this text that we can see such a vivid picture of the reality of that which is to come that our eyes will be lifted up and, and we will long for the eternal state in a way we have never longed for it before. As I say, this is the final message in our series, Things to Come. There were seven things to come that we have talked about over the last months. There was the rapture of the church first. There was the rise of the Antichrist. There was the retribution of God, also known as the tribulation. There was the return of the king. There was the reign of Christ. There was last week, the dark and dismal rejection of His rule, and now we arrive at the glorious remaking of heaven and earth. This is a a message that is is designed to encourage us, to be upbeat, to to cause us to, to desire that which is our true inheritance. According to the Scriptures... After the terrible judgments here of the great white throne at the end of chapter 20, Messiah will hand over His kingdom to the God and Father and join Him in eternity, reigning and ruling over the new creation, that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. By the way, it is for this reason that the Old Testament prophets can refer to Messiah's kingdom as being an eternal kingdom. Yet when we read Revelation 20, it says it's a thousand-year kingdom. How do we reconcile a thousand-year kingdom with the prophecies of an eternal kingdom? The answer is, is that Messiah hands up His kingdom to His God and Father and it becomes the eternal kingdom. So I want to look at these Scriptures with you this morning. What do they have to say about the eternal kingdom? Three unimaginably appealing characteristics. Unimaginably appealing characteristics of this eternal state. I want to look at them together because I want to cause our eyes to be lifted off the horizontal and I want to cause us to long for paradise to be restored. Let me read for you what what the Apostle John saw in his vision. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and 
And there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measures its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh adjacent, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His bondservants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. May I say, Amen. Wow. What a vision John sees. What a glorious vision John is made privileged to see. And he communicates it here to us. Beloved, the old creation, the creation in which you and I live even this day, is a creation stained by sin. It is a creation that has been corrupted. It is characterized by rebellion and defiance, sin and death, alienation from God, its Creator. And it must pass away. It must be dissolved. And in fact, that's what we're told happens to it. Second Peter, Peter tells us that it is melted, it is dissolved in intense heat. It, it passes from the scene. And it is replaced, the prophet John tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 21, by a new heaven and a new earth. Now we would have all kinds of questions about such a new heaven and a new earth, wouldn't we? I'm sure there is much speculation that we could do about such a thing, but, but John surprisingly gives very little detail about the new heaven and new earth here. He speaks a lot more about the new city, Jerusalem, that will occupy this new earth, but very little about the new heaven and the new earth. But he does say a few things, and let's observe what they are. First, let me say that God, that, that God through John, unquestionably uses sim, or designs symbolic meaning in these chapters. I don't think there's any way that a, that a person could dispute that. There is a lot of symbolic meaning in chapters 21 and the first part of chapter 22. Symbolic meaning that is designed to portray the beauty, the splendor, and the glory of this new creation. But just because there is symbolic meaning here, that doesn't mean that these chapters are devoid of a literal reality, a literal features of this new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. John is describing for us a literal heaven and earth, a literal new Jerusalem, and a literal reality of God dwelling bodily among His people. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. The Lord's table, communion, has great symbolic meaning, doesn't it? It conveys symbolically powerful spiritual truth. 
Yet there is a very literal reality to it. It is a literal bread. It is a literal cup that we drink from. Well, so in the same way here among John's vision. He is bringing us to a place we've never been before. But none of what he describes here is is impossible for God to design and build. But it is outside of our experience realm. Specifically, John begins by telling us in verse 1 of this new heaven and new earth that there is no longer any sea. No longer any sea. The world that you and I live in is 70% covered by ocean. We are the blue planet. We stand out in this solar system and galaxy because of the reality of the amount of water that covers this planet. 70% covered by oceans. But the new heaven and the new earth, he says, no longer has any sea. As I was thinking about the reality of this, what came quickly to my mind was to think was to be reminded of Noah and the great flood and the fact that the sea when we look every time we look at the sea what we should be reminded of is that that sea represents God's judgment on sin it was by a flood of the great oceans that God completely scoured this planet destroyed sinners Peter makes that same connection, by the way, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. I won't turn you there, but you can check it on your own. He ties the great flood into the final judgment of fire by which the present earth is destroyed. John says, in this new heaven and new earth, there will no longer be and he see no longer a re- reminder of God's wrath against sin. Beyond that, it appears that the new heavens will not contain the sun or the moon either. And that's kind of difficult to experience or to think about, isn't it? We set our clocks by the sun rising and setting. The moon governs the night. John goes on to say, not only will there be no sun and no moon, there will be no darkness of night. For example, chapter 22, verse 5. And there shall no longer be any night. The new heaven and the new earth will be illumined by the glory of God, he tells us. It will be the glory of God that will shine forth and provide light. In this new place. Does that shock you? Can you consider the possibility of light without the sun? You should be able to. Because according to the Genesis account, light was created on day one. And the light bearers were created on day four. Light as an entity was called into existence by God. It is not dependent upon the light bearers. 
So what he's communicating to us here, I think, is that we're, we're moving back in time, as it were, and it is God now who provides light to his new creation. All told, the Apostle John actually lists seven evils that no longer exist in the new heaven and the new earth. The first is no longer any sea in verse 1. But your eyes drop down to verse 4 and he says there that there will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain. These are what is characterized by the world in which you and I live today. But the new creation will no longer experience these things. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Chapter 22, verse 3. There shall no longer be any curse, he says. And then chapter 22, verse 5, as we just looked at, no longer any night. All of these seven evils are associated with sin and its consequences. The absence of them here in this eternal state communicates an unstained environment. An unstained environment. And beloved, that is the, it is the first of the unimaginably wonderful aspects of the new creation. Living in an unstained environment. That is so beyond our experience. So beyond our experience. The people of God, listen to me now. The people of God are going to know a day when the horror of sin will be no more. Be no more. A new heaven and a new earth. Onto this new heaven and new earth, God will place a new city. The new Jerusalem, it's called, verse 2. Do you see it? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. At the time that John wrote, the old city of Jerusalem, the city that was tainted with sin and rebellion, the place where Messiah was crucified, had been destroyed by the Romans for almost 25 years. And John looks ahead and he says, I see a new Jerusalem. I see a new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. This is the city the people of God have been looking for for all time. This is the city that Abraham looked for, according to Hebrews 11 and verse 10. This is the place Jesus went, according to John 14 and verse 2, when he said, I go to prepare a place for for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Where? In the new Jerusalem. This is the permanent residence of God. And John says he sees it come to the earth. This city is fabulous beyond description. It is enormous in its size, its proportions. Look over at verse 16. 1,500 miles cubed. We'll come to that in a moment. Enormous in its proportions. And it's dazzling in its beauty. 
Look at verse 2. This is described as a bride adorned for her husband. The idea is she is dressed in the most beautiful way conceivable as she comes down that aisle to meet her husband. This is the new Jerusalem. Adorned like a bride. Dazzling. Verse 11. Her brilliance, it says, was like a very costly stone. It's a stone of crystal clear jasper. Jasper. Dazzling. The city is is beyond description. The Shekinah glory of God illumines the city, we're told. Verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. You remember back to the temple, or the tabernacle rather, that Moses had constructed in the wilderness. And how the Shekinah glory of God descended on the tabernacle and it shone and it glowed and it, and it revealed the glory of God. Solomon built that glorious, magnificent temple and, and there we're told in 1 Kings 8 11 that the Shekinah glory of God descended on the temple and it too was radiant and dazzling in its appearance. Gold leaf everywhere. And nothing but pictures Nothing but shadows. Nothing but illustrations of what is to come. This heavenly Jerusalem that descends upon the earth will know the glory of God and it will shine like the sun. 1,500. Again over there. Verse 16. 1,500 miles in width and length and height. A cube. A cube. By the way, it's interesting to me, and I think intentionally so, that God creates this holy city as a cube because in the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled among His people, its dimensions were that of a cube. When God dwelled among His people in a tabernacle or in the temple of Solomon, His presence was localized in the Holy of Holy. It was a cube in its proportions. Now God will dwell here among His people in a cube that's 1,500 miles in each direction. That's about from Canada to Mexico, from the Pacific Ocean to Colorado. That's a pretty good sized city. Now, some might think to themselves, well, how is it possible for a city that that large to plunk sit on the side of the earth? Isn't it going to throw it out of balance? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. We we immediately would enter into the realm of speculation. I don't know the answer. I do know this, that the question presupposes that nothing has changed from this earth as you know it to the earth as God will recreate it. And we know for sure that something's changed because no longer will 70% of the planet be covered with what? Water. The holy city. Surrounded, verse 17, you notice this? By a thick wall, 72 yards, 216 feet thick. 
It's surrounded by a, this thick wall, this wall of protection. It's punctuated by 12 gate towers, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, literally great gate towers. And standing at guard at each of the gate towers are 12 angels, one angel at each of the gate towers. Beyond that, verse 25, the gates are never closed. They are never closed. Why? Because the wicked cannot enter in, verse 27. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it. Why? Verse 8, because they have been consigned to the lake of fire. Why does the heavenly city have a wall surrounding it? Why does it have gate towers? Why does it have angels guarding the gate towers? Particularly when the gates are always open and the wicked are confined to the lake of fire. What's the point? I'm glad you asked. Here's the point. What is being communicated here is the absolute security of the people of God. Our absolute security. No longer will the people of God have to worry. No longer will they be persecuted. No longer will enemies oppress them. No longer will they be called upon to suffer because of their commitment to the one true God. They will live in absolute perfect security. And it is being communicated to us by the reality of this massive wall and these angelic guards. How else would you communicate perfect security to the people of God? The New Jerusalem, beloved, will forever be a, pay, a place of peace and safety for the people of God. Who lives in this city, by the way? Well, verse 7, chapter 21 says, He who overcomes shall inherit these things. The overcomer. The overcomer is a resident of this city. Now that expression, overcomer, for one who, is, who has been reading through the book of Revelation and has been paying attention, their ears should perk up and they should go, oh, the overcomer, the overcomer. I remember them. They're from chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. And they're spoken of those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They are His children. They are the overcomers. First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 makes it clear the overcomer is the one who knows Jesus Christ. Who are the residents of the city? They are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, they are defined in verse 12 as the, the believing Jews of the Old Testament. Notice it says these 12 gate towers have names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Beyond that, the foundation stones of the city wall, verse 14, 12 foundation stones, one at each corner by the gates, and they bear the apostles' names. The apostles of the Lamb. What John is communicating here is in this great city, the people of God will be brought together as one. Brought together as one. 
How do I reconcile? How do I reconcile? Jews and Gentiles, as one people of God brought together in the great city, Beloved, in the mind of God, there are His chosen people, the Jews. And there are the Gentiles whom He has chosen. And He has saved them both through the one Messiah, Jesus Christ. And He brings them together as one people of God and residents of this eternal city of Jerusalem. But they continue into the ages as Jew and Gentile. They do not lose their ethnic identity. We even see here in chapter 21, he he talks about the nations. The nations be able to, verse 24, will walk by the light. The kings of the earth bring their glory into this city. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Even in eternity, even in eternity, we remain Gentiles, Jews, United together as one people of God. Living in an unstained environment. What are we going to be doing while we're living there? What will occupy us in this unstained environment? According to the prophet here, we will be working. We will be working. We will work with unrestrained productivity. Unrestrained productivity. Again, we need to circle back around to Genesis. God created man in His image. Genesis 1 and verse 26. And He created him in His image so that they might reflect His glory, the glory of one who is a creator and sustainer God. He placed them into the garden and He told them to tend the garden and subdue the earth. Genesis 1 and verse 28. What that means is that a life of indolence is never God's design for people. God has never designed us. It was never His intent that we would be characterized by inactivity. As a result of the fall, work has become frustrating. Work has has lost its, its satisfaction. It fights us constantly. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the curse has been lifted, we read. Sin has been obliterated. Redeemed humanity will be able to again perfectly reflect their Creator's image. The end of verse 5, chapter 22 We shall reign forever and ever. That is, we will be involved in real productive work. You're going to work in heaven. Now, I thought heaven was a place of rest. Isn't that what people say? That's what I used to tell my kids. So you can rest in glory. You work now. So now I have to amend my theology. Fortunately, my kids are grown. You're going to work now and in heaven. <laughs> the difference will be that here it's frustrating. There it's God-glorifying and soul-satisfying. 
What brings about this change? The answer is the transformed nature of the earth. We live on a globe, on a planet that has been corrupted by sin and it, it is loaded with pain and hardship. That can cause us to mistakenly think that inactivity or absence of work is the greatest good. We're going to get to heaven and we're not going to have to work anymore. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to rest. Our whole crazy retirement system is built on this notion that inactivity is our highest and greatest good. Right? Work for 40 years, save all you can so that you can live for 20 years at the end of your life on a permanent vacation. That's the system of our present retirement. And if somehow you can't imagine or, or, or are not able to save enough money to do that, don't worry, because the taxpayers will make up the difference. And you'll spend 20 years doing nothing. What a crazy system. Crazy system. Beloved, we know work. Here and now, this life can never provide ultimate satisfaction because this world's broken. It's easy to get involved in the ruthless cycle of work, 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 pursuing the things of this earth. And we work and we work and we work until we're exhausted and then we descend to a period of inactivity. We fall on the couch with the remote control and mindlessly skim through channels. Or we take a vacation where we spend a ton of money and we go away and we do nothing. We call it rest. It's a getaway vacation. Sometimes we get so involved in the day-to-day grind that we, we get so overwhelmed we think we need to even take a vacation from church. I've had people tell me that. I, where were you last week? Man, I had such a hard week. I needed a vacation. I've never been bold enough to ask them from church. We get caught up in this rat race. Listen to me, this world is broken. This world is broken. And if if we're trying to gain satisfaction out of this broken world, we are manifesting unbelief. For the follower of Jesus Christ, we don't work to earn a living. We work to glorify God. We work to glorify God. And we glorify God by exercising our God-given ability to create, to invent, to improve, to enhance, to achieve a task. And we have times of rest. One day in seven is the biblical pattern. But rest is not inactivity. It should not be confused with inactivity. Rest, biblically, is a a reorientation of our energies away from trying to scratch a living out of this broken planet towards worship of our great God. It is never inactivity. Never. Never. 
Beloved, there's a day coming. There is a day coming. We are going to enjoy absolute productivity. Soul-satisfying work. Some people think they're going to be bored in the eternal state. I'm here to tell you, you don't need to bring a magazine. No magazine necessary. You are going to be exceedingly busy. Busy doing that for which God has created you from the beginning. We're going to live in an unstained environment, working with unrestrained productivity, and finally enjoying unhindered fellowship. Think back again with me to the garden. When Adam and Eve were placed in that garden before the fall, they enjoyed unhindered fellowship with God. The Scripture animates that they walked with Him in the cool of the day, right? Genesis 3 and verse 8. They enjoyed that face-to-face relationship with God. And then everything was turned upside down. With the fall, they were driven from the garden. They were cut off from the tree of life. God no longer walked with them in the cool of the day. They no longer enjoyed the face-to-face intimacy with God. God was now fearful. God was now distant. From that point forward, sin had corrupted everything. Death stalked every individual. (coughs) Because of their defilement, God is distant. God is fearful. There's probably no better exemplified than in the law of Moses. Think with me about the law of Moses. Only once a year could someone enter into the presence of God, right? One time a year, and only one man himself, and only under the most strict and exacting standards could he come in. In fact, they would tie a rope around his ankle, and he would trail it in, because in case he messed up and God struck him dead, they could drag out his body. He had bells on the bottom of his robe, and as long as they could hear the bells tinkling, they knew he was still alive. (coughs) These are fearful conditions in which God is separated from his people. He can only be worshipped through types and shadows. Yet this gave way on the cross of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51 records how the moment of the death of Christ, the the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies is thrown wide open. The ability to now come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ has been made available to all the people of God, no longer just to the one high priest and one day a year. That's the world that you and I live in. We have a loving Heavenly Father, right? We can call Him Abba, Daddy. We have a great High Priest in Jesus Christ who 
ever lives to intercede on our behalf. We have the Holy Spirit of God who resides within us and, and ushers us into the presence of God Almighty. We have what the saints of old could only hope to have. And yet, listen to me, and yet, the truth of Exodus 33 and verse 20 remains. You cannot see my faith for no and can see me and live. Do you desire to see God? Would you like to see God? Are you satisfied with the current situation in which you find yourself? We come in here to worship God. But if we're honest, we find that frequently He's distant from us. We're not as close as we would like to be. There's still a sense in which He is out there somewhere and we're here. We find ourselves distracted. We find that the things of this world seem more real and God more distant. The promises of our eternal inheritance somehow are are remote and, and foggy and hard to get our arms around and the things of this world seem so, so real and pressing down on us. If we're honest, we were to ask ourselves Sunday after Sunday, did you meet God here today? A number of us would have to say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I sang. I listened to the prayers. I listened to the preaching. I put money in the offering plate. But I'm not sure I met Him. Beloved, there's still space. There's still distance. Our fellowship still is hindered. And it's hindered by sin. It is sin that remains, that that hinders the closeness that we desire to be with God. ever experienced a time when you just wanted to be with God? When all else failed away, or, or faded away rather, and you just wanted to be with God? I've experienced it only once or twice in my whole life. Where everything else in the world, my, the love of, for my wife and for my children, and the, my love that I have for you, and, and all the other things in this life that are, that are so real to me, just kind of faded away and it was just me and Christ and and I wanted to be there so bad. I don't think I'm that different than anybody else. I suspect that very few times have you ever had that kind of longing too. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see Him. Moses wanted to see Him. The people of God have always wanted to see Him. Verse 3, chapter 21. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, pay attention, listen up. Something amazing has happened. The tabernacle of God is among men and he himself shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Among us. Pay attention. Pay attention. God will dwell among men. God will dwell among men. This takes us all the way back before the fall. Back to the time when God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with His first children. Back to a time before sin messed everything up. This one fact alone is our greatest and highest good. Nothing can compare with this. It is the supreme reward for the children of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, the prophet gives... Many other indications of this here. Verse 11, he talks about the glory of God in the city, the new Jerusalem. Chapter 22, verse 3, God and Christ together on the one throne in the city. Immediate access to God to see His face, to reflect His glory. Verse 4, chapter 22, they shall see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. Unlimited access. Unlimited access to that which was formerly placed off limits. The tree of life. And beloved, the tree of life, not one solitary tree now, but a great orchard. Lining the banks of the river of water of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. Fruit that is available all year long. Over and over and over again, John is communicating this amazing reality that God will be with us and we with Him. In John 17, John chapter 17, Jesus defined eternal life for us. He gave us a very simple definition. He said, this is eternal life. That they may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Our relationship with God. Beloved, it's a relationship we have now by faith. 
We trust in the Word of God that has revealed to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that His death is our death, that His resurrection is our resurrection, that His life lives through us, and that we will live eternally with God, but it is still by faith, but someday it is going to be sight. No more hope. No more faith. Sight. You're going to see God. You're going to see God. Does your heart long for Him? Does your heart long to be with God? Is it the greatest joy of your life? What will you give for that opportunity? You don't know Christ by faith here and now. You are headed for the lake of fire. But if by faith, Jesus Christ is your Savior. He is the Lord of your life. Your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, it says. Your residency in the eternal city secure. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. And you will forever live in an unstained environment. An unstained environment. Experiencing unhindered productivity. And unhindered fellowship with God. It can all be yours by faith. Will you receive Jesus today? Will you receive Christ? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, it is so hard for us to shake free of this world and its entrapments. Indeed, it is impossible for man, but with you all things are possible. And so I pray, our Father, for your heavenly spirit, or your Holy Spirit to do His heavenly work in us even now. Oh Lord God, for those that are here among us who do not have the certainty of life everlasting, who do not know where they will spend eternity, Scripture says most clearly that they will spend eternity separated from you. Unless you extend your mercy to them through Christ. And so I beg you, our Father, to do so. Lord, open their eyes and stop their ears. Soften their hearts. That they might embrace Christ. For the rest of us, our Father. We know the truth. We believe the truth. 
And yet our Father, often the truth seems to be pushed off center stage by the things of this world. Oh Lord, as we experience the hardship of this life, as we, as we go through living in a sin-cursed world, may it cause us not to despair, but may it cause us to look up and long for the glory to come. Oh Lord, change our perspective. Give us a deep, deep longing to be with you. We ask in Jesus' name.